Hi, I'm here with Dr. Kevin Plancher to talk about the upcoming OSET Spine Meeting this September in Boston. Hi, it's Kevin Plancher on behalf of Michael Wang and his co-chairs at OSET Spine with Vinko, Dave Polly, Izzy Lieberman, and Mark Levine. It's Kevin Foley and Dan Shuba that are honored professors this year. I know that Mike uh, Wang and Groff are really looking forward to host you with 25 other orthopedic spine faculty that will be joining us. Rex Marco will be there, supported by the Dana-Reeve Foundation, and it's our second annual OSED Spine Fellows Meeting with HSS, Texas Faculty Institute, UCSF, USC, Brigham and Women's Hospital, the University of Miami, a lunch and learn combining with the hip arthroplasty members and the spine faculty to solve problems of spinal pelvic alignment, 4K technology theater. We're heading to Fenway for a, a dinner as well. You can't beat it. OSED Spine at the Encore Boston Harbor Hotel, September 23 and 24. Hope to see you there. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast here with another in-person episode at the in-person AANS meeting. Exciting to be back and uh, seeing all of our old friends and making some new friends. Um, I'm here with Dr. Gabriel Zada, who's uh, at the University of uh, Southern California. And we're very excited to be talking about not the past, not the present, but the future of tumor surgery within neurosurgery. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, I just met you today with Dr. Wang quite organically, which is one of the best things about these meetings where you can pass someone in a hallway who you know and make new friends uh, sitting in the hotel lobby, right? That's exactly right. And you have a good mentor in Dr. Wang. Yeah. So f for our listeners and for myself just meet you today, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your background and how you came to where you are professionally? Sure. So um, I'm from Los Angeles originally. I went to um, school at UC Berkeley where I got a chance to um, study neuroanatomy um, and uh, became very interested in the brain there and had some um, inspiring uh, mentors. Um, and then uh, went to UC San Francisco for med school. Um, and that's where um, really got exposed to neurosurgery and all the phenomenal um, uh, uh, attending and resident physicians who were there and, and still are there. Um, and then I went to USC um, in Los Angeles uh, where Dr. Wang trained as yeah. well. Um, under the, the tutelage of uh, Dr. Marty Weiss and then Dr. Steve Giannata, who is still chairman there. Um, I did a fellowship with Dr. Ed Laws in Boston at the Brigham um, in uh, pituitary and endoscopic uh, surgery. And then I've been faculty uh, at USC since that time, since 2011, um, and going on 12 years now at, wow. uh, at, at USC. My practice is uh, primarily brain tumors. I'm the director of the USC Brain Tumor Center. Um, uh, about half my practice is endoscopic, minimally invasive, and the other half is open brain tumor skull base. Um, and uh, I do a lot of radio surgery as well. I run a lab, and uh, I am the associate residency program director. Beautiful. And so I, I think, as stated, you're perhaps the perfect person to discuss this topic with, right? So with that kind of pedigree and that kind of training, all the different mentors you've had bringing you to today as a tumor specialist, you've heard stories, you've seen firsthand what the practice of neurosurgical tumor surgery has been like in your own period of training, in the period of those who trained you when they were learning and coming up in the field. So maybe if you could paint us a picture right now of what's an average day like for you in terms of 
what kind of tumors are you seeing? What kind of cases do you book? Uh, and maybe what's different today about the things you might choose to take to the operating room or perhaps more interestingly, what would you choose not to operate on? Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great way of framing it. It's a great question. Um, I do an entire spectrum of tumors, really going from fully benign all the way up to um, brain metastases, sinonasal malignancies, glioblastoma, uh, all types of glioma. So I have a, a diverse tumor and skull-based practice. Um, and I have seen a lot of changes in the last um, 15, 20 years. I, um, the, the, the ones that come to mind um, most rapidly are um, for, for brain metastases, actually. I remember when I was training, um, melanoma was uh, a death sentence, essentially. Yeah. Uh, the, the survival of, of brain uh, metastatic melanoma patients was less than a year. Um, it was around nine or 10 months. And um, uh, of course, due to targeted uh, uh, therapies and checkpoint inhibitors, um, uh, and of course, immunotherapy, um, even improvements in, in stereotactic radiosurgery, minimally invasive craniotomy, those patients are living years now. Um, and what a dramatic change uh, that is. Um, that, that's a huge difference. I think, um, you know, that's just a great example of where tumor um, uh, uh, therapies are going. And obviously the role of the surgeon is evolving. Um, uh, just, you know, looking back again, another milestone, I think, in what we do. And we don't, we rarely get milestones in tumor, in, yeah. in the tumor world. Um, you know, we come to these meetings and occasionally there's some, some new research or something groundbreaking, but I can remember, you know, I can count on one hand what I really consider groundbreaking in the last 10, 15 years. Um, uh, I'd say one of those things was, um, uh, was targeting BRAF7 mutations in craniopharyngiomas. Hmm. And, uh, and it's just a great example because for the first time almost, we had a drug that was able to make a really invasive, complicated tumor, at least in papillary craniopharyngiomas, shrink. And I remember sitting in the plenary session watching the Harvard group present the first case report where they gave a dual uh, inhibitor and, and this papillary craniopharyngioma shrunk down. And we, we had never seen anything like that. We'd only seen that really with, uh, with prolactinomas, yeah. where we have dopamine agonist agents. Um, and then occasionally there were some other uh, uh, tumors that would respond, lymphoma, you know, you'd see shrink yeah, somewhere. But, but to actually see that happen with, uh, with, with some of these other tumors um, really points to, the, I think, the directions uh, we're headed in. Um, so, so we have had some modifications in who we take to the OR, but certainly that's really exciting. Um, the, the obvious culprit is glioblastoma. And yeah. I'm very confident in the next couple of decades we'll, we'll I don't want to say cure, but I think we'll find some, 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 uh, some therapies that will really, really push our, our overall survival and progression-free survival back um, way well past the two-year uh, uh, point that we're, 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 we're still under it uh, now. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me that the landmark you point to as a neurosurgeon is the development of a new medication. And it, it's always interesting when I look at different surgical fields, when I look at different subspecialties within neurosurgery, what are the major step functions, if you will? What are, the, what are the big game changers, rather than just improving things within the norm, changing what the norm is? And I, I think in the last hundred years of medicine and surgery, one of the biggest changes we've seen is the introduction of endovascular techniques. And we all know what that did to cardiothoracic surgery. And so when that came along to treat the nervous system and the cerebrovascular system, wisely organized neurosurgery said we'll get a slice of that pie right we'll, we'll get in on those techniques and become practitioners ourselves it took a while but we figured it out and we did it successfully and that was huge right 
And so similarly within the field of tumor surgery, it seems like with, within the very brief amount of time that I've been um, functioning within the field and, and studying and, and learning and observing things, as you pointed out, these big step function changes, these big um, game changers within tumor surgery are often not surgical techniques. They're the introduction of new medications. They're, I guess, endoscopy is a, is a change in surgical approach and in surgical access, um, radio surgery. So we briefly touched on the, the evolving role of the surgeon. What do you anticipate in the next 20, the next 50 years? Do you foresee any major technical changes in the role of the neurosurgeon treating tumor patients? Obviously, we're involved with radiosurgery, with planning and execution, but what else do you see joining the surgeon's armamentarium, if you will? Yeah, um, uh, really good question, great points. Um, uh, I see our role moving forward. Um, obviously, we're headed on a road um, towards minimal invasiveness. Um, there's yeah. no question about that. And the role of the surgeon moving forward um, will be to apply new technology, keep things going in that direction. Uh, but um, more and more to sample tissue. That's yeah. really what our role is going to be because we are going to develop newer medications. And I think it makes sense that the disruptors, so to speak, are our medications. That's what's going to keep patients out of the OR or limit our requirement to do extensive aggressive resections if we have something medically that they'll respond to. Um, along the point of, of radio surgery, I'm really happy that, that neurosurgeons have helped carry that torch right. and, and the development of it, not, not just left that to radiation oncology, but it's uh, along, along the uh, analogy that you made with endovascular um, and spine is another example, but uh, the, the fact that neurosurgeons have continue to really focus on radiosurgery is absolutely critical. As surgeons, I think um, uh, in the realm of minimally invasive surgery, robotics is inevitable. Mm. As we see miniaturization in robotics, um, we don't really have a true robot in the sense that other subspecialties do. Uh, when, you, when you look at something like a Da Vinci intuitive robot yeah. that head and neck, urology, cardiothoracic, even ENT have, until it's uh, more miniaturized. And, uh, and when it is, um, uh, that will be an opportunity for neurosurgeons to, to, to take minimally invasive surgery to the next level uh, and, do it, and do it more safely, perhaps. Um, that will probably be a big transition, but I, I think it's inevitable. Um, uh, the other things that I think are on the horizon are um, very innovative ways. Once you take a tumor out, um, is there anything else you can do in that cavity uh, um, to, to treat after the fact? So brachytherapy is a, is a great example of that. That's now making a resurgence, but in a very innovative uh, and, and um, way that's being investigated. Yeah. Um, so we're just starting to re-explore um, what seem to be phenomenal benefits of, of brachytherapy. You take a tumor out and you leave uh, you leave uh, seeds behind yeah. so you can treat uh, the surrounding tissue or um, any other type of drugs or drug delivery devices. I think we're working on, on new ways to deliver drugs to the brain. And, and you know, the idea of convection-enhanced delivery has been around for a while. But right. one of my colleagues at USC, Tom Chen, um, has really been an innovator in delivering drugs to the brain um, uh, intranasally. He has developed a platform uh, where you inhale um, a, a, a vaporized uh, a mist of drugs, and it's thought to by, bypass the, the, the systemic 
metabolism requirements and blood-brain barrier and be absorbed directly into the brain through the olfactory system and trigeminal system. And they've shown some really um, innovative results in IDH1 mutant gliomas. Um, so I think um, that type of vehicle is, is, is not really explored fully yet. So I think we're going to see a, a combination of things like that all headed towards minimal invasiveness. But, um, but uh, you know, uh, really um, leveraging the immune system uh, to, to work against tumors. Um, there's a lot of that going on. Uh, uh, you mentioned lit. That's one example. Focused ultrasound, another example, and radio surgery. And in addition to the ablative benefits that some of those modalities provide, there is a lot of thought that, that they can cause otherwise um, cold uh, or, or immune-sheltered tumors to, to become uh, um, uh, more recognized by the immune system, even across mm. the blood-brain barrier. And that's thought to be an additional benefit of some of those uh, um, uh, uh, that, that's not really um, uh, fully harnessed yet. Wow. You know, it, it's so interesting to just look at the, the vast scope of different disciplines and different medical specialties that are brought to bear to treat one patient with one disease. And I think within all of neurosurgery, tumor is perhaps the most multidisciplinary subspecialty, right? You have radiology, radiation, pathology, oncology, neurology, neurosurgery. You have teams of teams treating a single patient. And every technological advance you just mentioned, everything from us with a scalpel and a drill to a radiation oncologist with a laser beam and everything in between, all brought to bear to treat one patient with one disease. Um, I wonder what the conversations are like at this point in your career that you have with patients. Because when I meet a patient for the first time in the emergency room, comes in with a headache, gets a scan, brain tumor, right? And then all at once, someone who hasn't felt sick, doesn't have any systemic symptoms, just had a headache, all of a sudden you have to tell them they have cancer. And it's so different than cancers of the rest of the body because it's not like a stage four where it's spread everywhere. You And you have to use the big scary word of cancer, the big scary word of tumor, but then all, but oh wait, no, it's different than that. It's not like grandpa who died of lung cancer, but it's still a hefty diagnosis. And, but now, already in that complicated discussion, now you have to bring them to understand the complexity, not only of their disease, but the complexity of the treatment algorithm and meet 20 people who are gonna take care of them instead of one or two. How do you approach meeting patients for the first time who, who you can foresee, you see their scan before you see them in clinic, um, you, they've been referred with symptoms, it's a, it's a slam dunk diagnosis, you have a sense that they have X. And you, know to your, you say to yourself, well, we're gonna do this surgery, I can do this approach, they'll get some radiation afterwards, and this chemo, we'll consider X, Y, Z. You can see the next 20 steps of their course, and you have X amount of minutes for a clinic visit. How do you open that conversation? Because, the, I mean, we're talking about it for 20 minutes, you can talk for five hours about all this stuff and barely scratch the surface. So how do you talk to a patient you just met about this vast, vast machine that they're about to enter? Yeah, um, I'm really happy you brought that up, actually, because we, we tend to focus so much on the technical aspects of what we do and the research, and ultimately, it's always about the patient. Yeah. It has to always be about the patient and the families and the caregivers. Um, that's why most of us are in this, and, uh, and it, 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 it definitely does always come back to that. Um, one thing, I, and it's a team approach, and you mentioned that, and it has to be a team approach. The days of the, of the cowboy uh, or cowgirl neurosurgeon 
are um, are probably well behind us. And mm. it, uh, you know, I, it, you can do a perfect surgery, but if that patient doesn't have, for instance, systemic disease control, uh, it doesn't matter. And so, um, so uh, everyone needs to be successful um, in what they do. Um, I, what I tell my team is, when you sit down in a room with the patient. Um, you know, you, you have to put yourself in their shoes. It's the yeah. only way, and as we know that as physicians, right, to have that empathy and to um, really, really look at things from their perspective. Well, you know, um, how much do they understand? What are they going through? What are their expectations? What are, what is their socioeconomic um, uh, challenges? Yeah. What's preventing them from showing up for their radiation therapy appointment every day? Um, uh, so, a holistic approach to that person is preferred it's hard to do it's really hard to do in our current healthcare environment but uh but i try to guide our team um and we have a, a team of not just practitioners but even a navigator um is something that we've uh, uh, brought into our brain tumor center and a social worker so from that first diagnosis or first uh, whatever it is they them knowing they have a finding on their mri um uh, we we try to we try to handhold them through that process and uh, or, or shepherd that family through that process. I think that's our job as, as physicians, well before uh, um, uh, being surgeons. I think that's our job. And so I, um, I think we have to take that perspective and, um, and understand how much anxiety people are going through. And then, um, and then you know, the, the word doctor means teacher, and that's what we all need yes, to be does. is teachers. So to, to, to take a highly intricate, complex ocean of information and distill it down into what people can understand and then make sure they understand it and make sure their caregivers understand it. And, um, and at, at, you know, I think that's the best that we can do, but it really does take a team. It takes a social worker uh, um, to, to do it well. It takes a navigator and it takes um, everyone working together on, on, a, on a daily basis. Well, uh, I officially have you on the record for your prognostication for the next 20 years of tumor surgery. I'll, uh, we'll schedule you back on the podcast then to, to see what you got we'll right. We'll see how we do. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time and coming on the show today. I, I truly appreciate it. It was a real pleasure to meet you and get to talk with you about this. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.